Let's look at where we're at. Chapter 19. Uh, last week we looked at Absalom, David's son, had done the very best he could to destroy his father, seize the kingdom, kill all those on David's side. And David then has to come to terms with fighting his own flesh and blood, his own son, his own, his own family. And they obtained this victory last week and, and things look good until you get to the beginning of chapter 19 and you see some of these, these words and these, this wording of how it goes. This is a time of victory, a time of, of championship. And yet everybody at the beginning of this chapter is just mourning. They're sad. They're upset. They're, they're really moping around, acting a little defeated. Um, you know, and, and, and so because their leader is starting this thing. So just one of the first lessons we get right out the rip that you need to write down and make sure you get that we see throughout the beginning is we got to guard against doing the right thing the wrong way. We got to guard against doing the right thing the wrong way. Is grieving for a son the right thing? Yeah, of course. What dad shouldn't have the right to grieve over, over his own flesh and blood, his own son, despite the fact that he'd become an enemy, but but he lost his son, man. He lost a, a potential heir to the throne. He had lost somebody that may have gotten the chance to carry the torch, had things worked out differently. And, but we do that sometimes the wrong way. And that's where David kind of gets in trouble. And we get to this very beginning, the first three verses. And what I mean by doing it the wrong way is the effect of David's grief on his loyal supporters just ruins the whole mood. You know, here they are, should be at a pep rally type thing. Yet it's not so much. At the very beginning, it says, verse 2, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. Anytime something victorious that, that is part of God's plan, this is part of God's plan for them to have been victorious, for them to put David back into his place, for them to get back into, into their rightful spots that they were supposed to have been in that really should have never been taken away from them. Anytime we get to an era like that and it turns into mourning, we've missed something and we've forgotten something. Verse 3 says the people stole back into the city that day as people who were ashamed. David's excessive sorrow made his loyal friends and victorious soldiers feel ashamed of the victory that they just had. And sometimes we just need to pause maybe for ourselves and think about is some of the times we deal with our emotions and our feelings. Taking away the victory and the joy from other people that they deserve to have had. Again, not that it's wrong that he's mourning the loss of a son. But maybe the way he's doing it is wrong. Maybe the the elaboration of this is going on. And we know people like this sometimes. They want so much attention. They make sure to be the excessive. Uh, man, it sounds bad to say excessive mourners, doesn't it? They're the excessive attention getters uh, when it comes to errors like this. And for David, he gets to this sad spot. He couldn't stop singing this song of, of sorrow. He had a, what I, I wrote down this week, he had a, he had a lack of perspective. He was mastered by his feelings. And we need to understand as believers that feelings were never meant to master us. Does God give us feelings? Yes. Is God against feelings? No. Matter of fact, if I was to say this, I would think too many Christians probably lack a deep and profound feeling of experience when they walk with God because of a lack of feelings that they let get involved. However, at the same time, we need to understand that feelings were never meant to become our master. Maybe to point us in that direction, maybe to move us toward the master, but they were never meant to master us. And David's problem isn't necessarily what he knew. Here's what he knew. Absalom has had this tragic death. His, his son is dead. His role in contributing to this. David's problem wasn't what he knew. David's problem is what he forgot. 
David gets to this, this one little moment while he's in this, this dark era. And what David has forgotten is that God is still in control. The victory was still won because of God. That, that David has many loyal supporters to this moment right now. That God showed great grace and mercy to David despite all his failings and, and things that he's dealt with to get him back into this spot. And a lesson for us is when someone is overcome in tragedy or sorrow, the problem is not what they know. The problem is what they forget. And when we get into sorrow and we get into tragedy and we get into hardship, too many times we forget what scripture has reminded us and promised us of. And we need people like, I don't know about you guys, sometimes a couple of the guys in this week at least, like I got mixed emotions. I know as a pastor I'm supposed to say they're wrong. But then like as, as this manly man, I'm like, I like Joe I like the way the guy is getting stuff done. You know, I, I like uh, I like that guy that wants to just keep killing Shimmy. You know, he was the guy who said he wanted to cut his head off. Here he is again today just wanting to take him out. Like I like that guy. You know, so I confess to you guys, sometimes I like guys I shouldn't like. Uh, you know, in, in a macho man kind of way, not in any kind of creepy way that some of you may be thinking when I say I like a guy. So here's where we're at. But on, on a serious note, let's think about Joe. Sometimes we need some loyal people that's going to do and tell us the hard stuff. Am I right? Now, we don't like that, but we need a guy who's going to come up at our darkest moment, our moment of grief and say, man, it's time to wake up. It's time for you to suck up what you're going through. It's time for you to realize God is still in control. Not your feelings, not your emotions. And that's what Joab does. Joab goes up to him. Look at verse five. He goes up to him and he tells him, man, today you've disgraced your servants who have saved your life. Yeah, um is right because this guy's talking to the king this way. David could have said, you know what? Get out. Cut his head off. Abishai, make him a head shorter. You keep wanting to cut Shimmy's head off? Cut this guy's head off. I mean, he could have. Not, nothing says that he could have, but he's got this, this boldness about him. This, and I don't even know, we, we, we never really get to know exactly if David knows for sure how Absalom died. I, I wonder if maybe he doesn't know at this moment, to be honest, because I'm thinking if, if, if Joab had led this, this assassination and he's also the guy coming up and saying, Hey, you need to get over it. I think that conversation might have went a little different, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just a thought. But, but he goes up and says, he says, man, you, you need to wake up. Your excessive morning. Here's what he's telling him. And here's what sometimes we do. Your excessive mourning has become selfish because you've made this thing all about you. Your supporters, your men that were willing to die for you last week, those that, that charged the enemy, those that went into the forest and took care of good stuff, they deserve to feel good about what they've done. So you need to snap out of it. You need to wake up and you need to understand that what you're feeling right now sucks. But you don't need to be selfish about what you're feeling. Stop letting your feelings control you. Verse six, I perceive that if Absalom had lived, then all of us had died. Talk about a harsh truth. I perceive that if your enemy had lived and all of us died today, you would have been okay. Sometimes a sharp truth hurts, don't it? But don't we sometimes need it? I, I think this might have been like the, the Pope that finally got David realizing, man, I've really, I've really messed up like right now. Like, I, I, I don't like this. I don't like it. We don't like hearing that. But the sharp truth sometimes is what gets us. And he's telling them, you know, you're, you're foolish enough in this grief to be selfish about it. And this needs to change. So he gives them advice. In verse 7, he goes, now, therefore, here's what you need to do, David. You need to arise. You need to go out. You need to speak comfort to your servants. You need to go out there and encourage the team. They deserve it. And if you don't, look at the stipulation he gives. If you don't, you're going to lose them all. Like all the work we just did to set up what God has been wanting and where God wants you to be back at. If you don't handle it the right way. You're going to lose it all. 
And maybe that today is just a word for some of us. Maybe some of us need to realize that God has set us up and put us in places of victory and success, but we're not handling it the right way. And if we're not going to handle it the right way, we're going to lose the support of those that we need to continue the reign of success in God's kingdom. And, and here's what David does. You got to, you got to love a leader like David, man. Not only is he, is he a guy that messes up, but he admits his faults. Verse eight, right, right away. He receives Joab's review. Why? Because good leaders take good advice. And, and know what's going on right here. You, you need to know this because this, this right here is like a punch for every single one of us in the room. Verse eight, it says this. Here's a huge lesson. Then the king arose and sat at the gate. He got up. He went and did what he was supposed to do. But here's what you don't see in that verse that I think is the punch in the gut for a lot of us. Has David's feelings changed at verse eight? Is it like at verse seven and a half, we get this note that says, and all David's sorrow went away and he felt good. So he got up. Did David, did David, was he, was he happy? No, David's feelings have not changed. David didn't feel like doing this. His feelings told him to stay locked in the house, to stay mourning, to stay whining. Yet his understanding of what was right was bigger than what he felt. And I think sometimes we need to grab a hold of that truth. That though you may not feel like doing something, nobody cares what you feel like doing if it's something that needs to be done. Especially we're talking about for God's kingdom. God didn't come down in this supernatural way and say, David, I, I know you don't feel like it. So you just take more time and just let the people fade away from you. And we'll figure out a way to regroup this thing. No, he sent somebody like Joab that was going to be harsh and true and tell him, if you don't do something right now, you're going to lose it all. And David, thankfully, was 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 wise enough to take this. And despite what he felt, he knew that his feelings didn't, didn't really matter. And he went with this thing. And, and, and it's funny that we never hear and all of this. And even in the first Kings, we never hear David crying out that song of, oh, Absalom, my son, oh, Absalom, my son, oh, Absalom, my son. Where he repeats it over and over and over again. And maybe here's the truth that a lot of us need. We need to get our feelings out of the way so that we can get what God has for us. I think too many of us are missing out on what God's got for us because we're letting our feelings stop us from getting what God's got for us. And as long as you continue to let your feelings control you and your situations, you will never get totally what God's got for you. God says, I'm bigger than your feelings. I'm bigger than your emotions. I'm bigger than your pain. I'm bigger than your sorrow. Maybe another way of saying it is like this. Doing what he needed to do got that song of sorrow out of his head. Some of you, you ask all the time, how do I get over this? How do do I get through this? You just get to doing what you need to do. And I think some of that stuff will get out of your head. But as long as you continue to wallow in the mud pit, you're going to continue to smell like a pig. Right? I mean, we're not talking about any highlighted ideas. We're just talking about putting emotions and feelings aside. And, and marching the way we're supposed to march. And I'm not telling you this is an easy thing. I'm not saying, oh, this should just be something so simple that you just glide right into it. I think this sucks. I think when David first got there that morning, and we know he's now sitting at the gate where his son wanted to sit and cast judgment on, on people's cases. We, we, we've seen this in, in past chapters. I think when he got there that morning, he got there so early, nobody was there yet. Nobody's expecting the king to be there. He hadn't been there in forever. And I bet when he first sat by that gate, he was crying He had snot rolling down his face. He was whimpering. And when he looked up and saw the first people coming in a a direction, he had to make a decision at that moment. Either I'm going to wipe up the snot or the people are going to see me at my weakest moment. And I think he decided to blow his snot out his nose and get done with it. Is that not a graphic real picture for you enough right there? 
I say this because are we not the same way, guys? Have we been there? I've been very similar to where David's at, where I've had some emotions overtake me and, and I knew somebody was coming. And, and, and luckily I got my man card. Right. Right. I didn't want him to see it. So so I I didn't have a tissue. So I just sucked up on my snot because that now you've got a picture you'll never forget. Right. Huh? I'm going to get you one way or another to picture the scene. And he had to decide. I'm going to man up and I'm going to get this done. And that's what he does, though. Look, look at what happens. So the verse says, so all the people came before the king, all the people. Can you imagine how fat this is? South Carolina, guys. Here's what I mean by that. I texted Brian Wednesday night. So man, sorry to hear you got in the wreck. You all right. He says, first thing, not I'm OK. Not things are great. He says, my goodness, word travels fast and give ins. <laughs> Welcome to the family, brother. Right. This is exactly what's going on, because that first guy, he probably didn't even know the king was finally sitting at the gate and he made his way and he saw it. And then he got on his phone and texted everybody, put a mass tweet out and told everybody, hey, king is back at the gate. He's where he's supposed to be. No, but he think about the work he had to do. He went and got his stuff issued and he went and told everybody. Next guy came full five guys. They came to got their issue, work out with the king. They went and told everybody until the point where we got to this verse where it says, so all the people came before the king. I wonder what would happen if more of us would realize the king, the king, is sitting at the gate waiting on us to bring our troubles and our problems to him. And our job after he solves them is to go out and tell everybody so that everybody comes to the gate and sees what the king's got to say. Right. That's what they had to have done in order for all the people to come before the king. And this is what they needed to see. David sitting where he was supposed to be, his place of authority, doing what he was supposed to do, tending to issues that were supposed to be tended to so that they could say, my sacrifice was worth it. My sacrifice was worth it. What if three days later the disciples didn't see Jesus come up out the grave? What if that? What if 500 people didn't see him walking around? Would they not have had thoughts for the rest of their life of, oh my goodness, all the things I sacrificed were not worth it? Or did he make sure they knew it was worth it? Did they make sure to know that David was back at a spot and you can be appreciated? I'm going to reign and I'm going to take care of the things I'm supposed to take care of. Rebuke Work for Joab. And here's why. Because Joab cared enough to say it. What was Joab's real motive in rebuking David? I mean, let's think about it, guys. He's commander at this point of the army. If David don't do his job and David loses the support of his people, who you think is going to take over? Joab. He's got the right to say, I killed Absalom. He's got the right to say, I'm the man in charge of the military. I've got the power. And now he's gotten the right to say, David is no longer the guy who took down the Philistines and conquered lands for us. He's let his emotions take over. And now I will take over. But none of that happens with Joab. That's, that's why you got to have mixed emotions with Joab, man. I know he disobeyed. He's got an, he's got an authoritative problem. Okay. He don't like authority. I know a lot of Christians that don't like authority. All right. You know what I'm saying? And not always a bad thing, not always a good thing, but that's kind of where he's, he's at at this moment. He's just got an authority problem. But his motive, I believe his motive is always to keep David at number one. Even when he killed Absalom, what was his motive? To make sure that no more harm comes to you, David, or that comes to Israel. I'm making sure that this is this problem's done. I'm going to bury him with rocks so that he doesn't get a memorial made up. Look at last week, man. He, he's hardcore, but he gets it done. And he gets it done with a good motive. And there is where he's at today. He wants to make sure, at a good motive, he cared enough to say it, and David was wise enough to receive it. Let's be those that are bold enough, that care enough to give harsh advice sometimes when it's needed. Out of love, out of the right motive, 
And let's also be those that are wise enough to receive it. Okay. All right. Next scene. Nine, uh, we're at verse nine. If you keep it with us, nine through 10. This next, this next scene kind of cracks me up because this is what I see in church. This scene and the very last scene. Tribes are debating over whether to take David back as king. That's what's happening. All right. So you get to nine and 10 and nine says this. All the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel. David has survived Absalom's attempt to overthrow him, but the kingdom has not yet been restored to David. And here's what you can write down for us to apply for us. Here's exactly what this whole little section of nine and 10 is about. We get caught up on side issues. That's how you can write it down. They're so caught up on side issues, they forget about the main thing. The main thing is David is now going to be king again. The main thing is the enemy is dead. The main thing is, is, is victory is being restored. But they're so caught up on so many side issues. And I think sometimes we as believers, we do that same thing. We get so caught up on so many side issues. We argue about things. I wish we would argue about things that matter for the kingdom as much as y'all argue about stuff that don't matter for the kingdom. And I'm talking about all the time kind of stuff. This little virus idea is just a great idea right now to show you right now about some of the problems some of us got in church. We're willing to argue over a mask and we're willing to argue over where we can go. We're willing to argue over this and over that. How many of us are arguing for the souls of life? How many of us are arguing over making sure that the believers understand how they're supposed to act if they go live in the kingdom? How many of us are arguing over things that matter, those black and white things, not this gray area stuff? No, not many of us. But we can argue over little petty stuff that don't matter. Can't we? Huh? How's he say it, Mike? Modi Bakum? If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Probably one of the best phrases he said. Yeah. I think a lot of us can say ouch a lot through a lot of this. Huh? And it's true, though. It's true, though. Let's be real about it, right? It says this. The king saved us, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died. We, we get in arguments and we state like the most obvious stuff. Like, like, the, like part of their argument, well, the king who was king is still here and Absalom is dead. Like, what, what is, what is that solving by, by repeating that? The tribes of Israel understand that, that what David did for them, understand the rejection and, and the things that have happened. And, and here maybe is the truth. And here maybe is where we could really say, ouch. They only seem to want David after the false king Absalom has failed. Now let's throw that on us. We often decide to only bring back the king, Jesus, when all the other little false kings we make fail us. Huh? There we go. That should have been a lot of ouches. It ouched me. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Right? Let's be honest about it. That's our problem sometimes. The folly of their allegiance to Absalom was clear, and it brought only misery and confusion amongst them. Yet they're still with these side issues going on, even to the point of, I didn't put it on the screen or tell Crystal to, but look at verse 10. Verse 10 is going to kind of transition us into what we need to answer for today and for the rest of our lives. The very last part. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king? How many of us have gotten in areas of our life where our false kings have failed us and God may have even taken the false kings out and he's asking this question right here to us. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king, capital king, to his rightful position? Because we're so caught up with all these side issues that we've forgotten about the main issue. And the main issue is making the king the king of his kingdom. And if he's the king of his kingdom, then the next main issue is to make sure things in the kingdom are being done the way the king wants them done. Not the way I want them done, not the way you want them done or anybody else's. Now, now David, he, 
We, we said, we've said throughout this whole thing that he is a type of Christ. He gets more of a type of Christ in this chapter than ever before. Look at 11 through 14. He sends these negotiators to the tribes. They, David's smart. He's got spies everywhere. We know that. So he knows what they're arguing about. He knows what's going on. He, he's not quite like God where he knows everything, but he's got enough spies where he knows what's going on behind the scenes, right? And David says this. I, I'm not going to force. I'm not going to force my way back in. And, and I get a glimpse of David being like he was with Saul again. And I love it. I didn't like it then, to be honest, but but I love it because now we're seeing a man after God's own heart. We're, we're not seeing the macho man, the ego man, the, the takeover warrior. We're seeing a man after God's own heart. And what he says right here is I'm not going to take it by force, but I will go back. If you can go back into the territory and you can talk them into wanting me back as king. Does that not sound like like Christ? Not forcing his way. Even though he is king, even though at the end he is going to be done. But wanting us to to invite him back in and to accept him back in. Right. And just like with Saul, he doesn't lift a finger to reestablish his authority anymore. He doesn't. He doesn't move anything. His return to sovereignty uh, is a complete submission of these guys against him. He's got diplomacy going on. He he sent these these priests in and and these priests are talking to him and, and getting the stage set up. And a little bit of his diplomacy is this right here. Here's another reason we know Joab's not quite as evil as I kind of think he is sometimes. Because we get this section right here where he says, Amasa, the commander of of, of Absalom's army, I'm going to put him in Joab's place. Now, you can wonder behind the scenes, maybe Joab's being punished for what he did, for not following authority completely. Maybe, I don't know. I I really don't. But David agreed to replace Joab, his man, with, with Absalom's man, Amasa, who was the captain of his army, and this is all just a gesture of reconciliation. Maybe a, a little small lesson we can learn from David's life today is sometimes in order for reconciliation to work, we got to be willing to give up something. Now, now, be careful with that. I'm not saying you give up stuff that there's no you're not giving up black and white issues. OK, but in a gray issue, maybe maybe I don't know. Some small issues, maybe an issue that, that doesn't have any kingdom sway on it. Maybe. Right. Verse 14, so he swayed the hearts of the men of Judah just as the heart of one man. He's getting these guys back united. They're arguing, they're bickering because of all the side issues. And here these priests come in and they sway the hearts of all the men of Judah to get them back as a heart of one man. Not being forced, but being swayed. God uses his reign on us the same way. I find it funny that it's two priests that go because when I think about how God sways our heart, I think of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Some people say, yeah, but the preacher, yeah, but the preacher's got to be preaching the word of God because preachers sometimes don't be preaching the word of God. So if he's not preaching the word of God, he's not going to sway your heart the right way. And if the Holy Spirit don't get involved, your heart's definitely not going to be swayed the right way because he's got to do the work no preacher or anything else can do. Right. So I I don't know. Maybe just a side note. I thought it was kind of neat. Two men have to go two priests go in and two of the biggest things, if not the only things God uses to sway the hearts of man, his word and his Holy Spirit. And they get the job done. They get the job done. Look at what it says for end of verse 14. Just as the heart of one man. David, David's a Brookhaven Fellowship member. He wants unanimous decision. Think about this. Now, this is awesome because what do we see today? What are we going to see in November? I don't care if it's 51 to 49. We're going to be the most divided country probably ever when it comes to an election. Right. Could be right. I don't know. But think about it. That's all we care about. Who gets 51? Right. That's not David. And that's not any issue. I hope my man gets 51. Don't get me wrong. Right. But, but think about this. Think about that. That's not how David's handling. David says, I, I want a unanimous decision. I want them all. I want them all as one heart and one mind 
Now, is that not a type of Christ? Does Christ not want his church unified, unanimous together, acting like one body instead of a whole bunch of bodies arguing about stuff that don't matter? A bunch of side issues. Right. With him as the head. Verse 15 through 18. Kind of the same scene, but a little bit, a little bit transition here. It says, then the king returned. He's finally, he's finally back or was. And verse 15 also says this, to escort the king. He gets escorted back in. Now think about when he left. When he left, I'm a picture guy, so I got a picture of all this. When he left, he was, he was a fugitive. He was rejected by the nation. He was hunted by his son. He was on the run. But when he comes back, it says that he was escorted by thousands of enthusiastic supporters. And these guys are on fire and ready to run, right? And this is where they're at. David's return finds the people of Israel in so many various states of mind and so many various states of preparedness. And if we include a little bit of the beginning of chapter 20, we see five different people specifically mentioned that come out to meet the king and all of them handle their situation in a different way. So that's where I want us to be the rest of this time. All right. Look at lessons we get from those that came out to meet the king. First thing we get. And I I do it in a question. So you ask yourself. Some are going to be worried when the king returns. Some are going to be worried. You look at Zeba, right? And you look at Shimmy. Now, I'm going to say this because I'm not exactly sure. And I'm, I'm going to give you both both plays on it here in a minute. I'm not 100% sure how, how how real Shimmy is in the words he's about to speak, okay? And, and mainly taken from some stuff that David says later in 1 Kings. So way, 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 way into the future, right? But here's here's what I do know that the scripture tells me. You got to be careful of the company you hang out with. Right? The first two people that come out, they're two guys that are worried. Now you think about it, if you already in a worry state of mind, don't be hanging out with more people that are in a worried state of mind. You know what I'm saying? If some of you, God forbid, and I hope nobody in the church is on the same, but, but if some of you have allowed this virus to get you so worried, then don't hang out with the news channels. Don't hang out on the computer. And for God's sake, don't hang out with anybody who's had the virus. Okay? Because they're going to paint a picture that makes you more worrisome. Am I right? Okay. I had to second guess myself. One of my big clients, the owner of a dump truck company, he got it. And he finally, he's passes 14 days and he's sitting there shopping and he's telling me about all the stuff. And I'm like, dang, that ain't real bad. I had, to, had to block it on out my head. But if you hang out with people like that, that are always feeding worry into your life, don't be surprised that you're always worried. It's no different with fear. If you hang out with people that's always afraid, guess what you're going to be? Afraid. If you hang out with teenagers, listen to me. Young adults, anybody under 35, 36. I can go that route now. How about I'm getting old, right? Anybody under 36. If you hang out with bad people, don't be surprised that you're being bad. You hang out with good people, don't be surprised that you're being good. Right? It's like rocket science when we start thinking about stuff, man. Huh? These two guys are so worried. Now, now they've got a right to be worried. I don't take that right away from them. You, you go back and you remember who Zeba was. Zeba's the guy who gets to King David, gives him a bunch of resources, but he only gave him one bottle of wine. So, you know, he didn't do real good on it. But, but Sorry, that was bad. But you know, he gets to this part and he's there, but he's lying about who he's supposed to be serving. That Mephibosheth kind of guy. Remember he said, oh, he, he's deserted you. He's going to take over the kingdom. He, in essence, legally, is blaspheming the king and that man that was in charge of him, right? Under false pretenses, right? So, so in short, you could say that Ziba lied to the king 
and he attempted to deceive the king. How many of us lie to the Lord and think we can get away with it? How many of us are foolish enough to think that we can deceive God? Right? Y'all laugh like it's crazy, but we do it. Right? We do it. Therefore, Ziba's worried, and rightly so, because the king is now coming back. And when the king gets back, the king is going to see who? Mephibosheth. And he's going to realize, oh, crap, Ziba's story was a lie. So he's got a right to be worried. Who else is he with? He's with Shimmy. Who's Shimmy? Shimmy was that guy that, as they first exited and they crossed over that Jordan, he starts throwing rocks at him and cussing at him. Remember? He's cussing, he's throwing rocks, and, and Abishai tells David, you want me to make him a head shorter? Coolest line in scripture, right? That's what he says. He says, you want me, I can cut his head off right now and make him a head shorter. He'll be gone. And even at that moment, David says, I'm not getting tied up in affairs that I'm not supposed to be worried about right now. There may come a time to deal with that, but I'm not going to let myself get sidetracked with little petty side issues that I'm not supposed to be involved in at the moment. He says, let him go. Let him go. Let's keep on, keep on marching. Why? I don't know what exactly changes in Shimmy's saying because he deserves death. He gets another guy who asked permission to kill him. And all this time that David's gone, however many months, I guarantee you that Shimmy is enjoying his freedom. Now, does that not just sound like some people when they don't know the king's presence is made? Just enjoying their freedom until they realize, oh, man, he's been watching the whole time. He's coming back, right? He had reason to worry. So so here's my question then. Will you be worrying when they, in case you hadn't caught the... The context yet. Will you be worried when the king returns? Will you be worried? Will you be, will you be like Shimmy? Or look at his words. He races there. Now, I don't know his motive again. I can't tell you 100% his motive, but I do know what he does is good. He races to get there first. He falls down and says, I, your servant, know that I have sinned. He falls down face before. He's humble in his presence of bowing before the king. He knows his place now. He's not throwing rocks and he's not cussing any longer. Right. So, 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 so he's learned something. He, he, he knows that David has the right to take him out. Yet he calls him Lord. Right. And, and asks forgiveness. And, and he's honest. I have sinned. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't. He doesn't say, well, you know, my mom and daddy, they bred me up to hate you. And, and you know, just, they don't do any of that. I have sinned. I did this thing against you and I am wrong. Shimmy's repentance also is put into action. He says, I'm the first to get here. Uh, and he also notice what he does. What does he bring with him? Look back at it. He brings a thousand soldiers with him. He, he's not only coming to, to, to ask forgiveness and about war. He, he's showing it with action. If your repentance doesn't have action, your repentance just might not be real. Now, just because you have action doesn't always make it real either. All right. So, so here's where we go. Look at David's response. David's response to him. Verse 23. Now, the king said to Shimei, you're not going to die. I, I forgive you. And I just wonder when, when you read those words, man. If you can't just get a glimpse of yourself being like Shimmy and hearing Abba, our father, Yahweh, say, I, I forgive you. I, I'm not surely you're not. Surely you shall not die. Just as David was ready to forgive Shimmy, our father's ready to forgive us. If we come with the right way, the right attitude, right? And look at David's words, because you, you got Abishai right there, right after 23, and he says, Shouldn't this guy be dead? I, don't, I wish I just wants to kill everybody. Shouldn't this guy be dead? And, and, and here's what David tells him. And here's a big lesson for us now. Big lesson, for real. Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Listen to David's confidence now. Man, everything has changed. He's not weeping. He's not whining. 
He's now confident holding his head up tall. Do I, do I not know that I'm the king? Do, do, do you not think I know I got the right to forgive and I got the right to eliminate? And I think David could do this because he's secure and knowing that God's blessed him with the throne again. And, and here's your big lesson. I told you it was coming. Insecurity is a great motivator for revenge and holding on to bitterness. When you get insecure, you hold on to revenge and bitterness. Things that you're supposed to let go. David is secure. He knows he's where God wants him. He knows where he's supposed to be. And he knows who he is now. He's back. That, that ought to be like the highlighted moment of 2 Samuel for us, guys. David is finally back all the way where he's supposed to be. Even after, I, I left this out, sorry, but I got to throw it in there because the enemy does it to you. Even after, I don't know if you caught Joab stab at him when Joab gave him the hard speech. Joab's the only guy who knows all David's secrets that we know of. All right? So what did, what did he tell him? He goes, if you think this is bad, this is going to be worse than all that other stuff you did when you were young. He's reminding him of his past mistakes, right? So he just got reminded of past mistakes, yet here he is understanding, I'm past past mistakes. God has raised me up back to my authoritative figure of being on the throne again. Don't you dare let your past and what the enemy tries to throw at you remind you of that and keep you down. You be secure. Because if you're not, revenge and bitterness will take over. Look at this. Now, now here, here was my, here was my, my, my worry. And I just give it to you as a warning for you. Because I can't tell you and we can't say for sure what Shimei does. But in 1 Kings, you may remember from Father's Day, when David gives advice to his son Solomon, he reminds him about Shimei. He says, hey, keep an eye on that guy. Deal with him the right way. Now, I don't know what dealing with him the right way is. Maybe it's, you know, making sure that he keeps being on track. Or maybe it's that guy lied to us. Let's get him. Right? I don't know. But, but, but just with that, it makes me wonder this. And I'm not judging Shimei in any way. And I'm not, you gotta, you gotta answer this question for yourself. Shimmy does, if, if, if I'm playing devil's advocate, Shimmy does only what is political necessary to save his life. When he brings forth, what verse 17 said, a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin, he only does what is politically necessary to save his life. So here's my question for you to answer. Because I don't care about Shimmy. I care about myself and I care about you guys. Is what you're doing just external? Or is what you're doing the real deal? Only you can answer that. All right? So that's on you. Next thing. Not only is some of us going to be worried, not everybody be worried. Some of us will be waiting. Look at 24 through 30. 24 through 30, it talks about that old uh, Mephibosheth. I'm finally starting to say his name right. I'm so proud. Don't dare tell me at the door I've been saying it wrong, okay? I'm proud of, I'm proud of where I got it right now, all right? This is the guy that was misrepresented by Zeba. All right, so Zeba made it there. Maybe Zeba raced there. I didn't think about this until just now. Maybe Zeba raced there to try to cover the story up a little bit. But, but notice David don't spend no time with Zeba. He kind of skips right on over him, right? You don't spend time in stuff that, that shouldn't be mattering, right? But uh, Mephibosheth, he comes out, he comes to meet the king, and, and it tells us something about him. Now, I don't know if this is just a hygiene thing or what, but he, but he tells him he ain't washed, he ain't shaved, he ain't washed his feet, he ain't cut his hair, he ain't did nothing since David left. This is a rough, stinky-looking dude, right? What, what do we know, though? All kidding aside, what do we know about Old Testament morning period? Think about some of the verses you've heard, I'm sure. Was it not visual? What did they do? They would dump ash on their head and wear a sackcloth. They were some rough looking people. Okay? Might, might this be what Mephibosheth is doing? Might he be visually letting his mourning be seen? Just like they, they were taught to do, right? And he, he had the right to do this. Because think about it. If you go all the way back to chapter 9, which Mike preached on. 
And hopefully you got you guys remember a lot from there. David had done great things for this guy. This guy was the last in Saul, the descendant of Saul. He was technically considered an enemy of David at this moment. David had every right to kill him, but instead David spares him. David took him on as his own family. He brought him to his table to eat. He gave him all the stuff that would have been Jonathan's. You know, this is just a huge picture of grace and mercy bestowed upon him. And here we have now Mephibosheth again. And Mephibosheth's love, I shouldn't have said I was saying it right. His love is based on what the king has done for him. And is that not something good we should be basing our love on? On what the king has done for us? Huh? He longed for nothing more than to see the king. I love this section, man. Look at the words right here, all right? Look at the words. And here's some truth to the story. He said, oh, Lord, my king, my servant deceived me. So he's getting right to the root of the matter. David says, you know, how how were you not with me? Like, why did you? He said, hold on, hold on. I would have been with you. That old Ziba, he saddled up and he said, I was crippled and couldn't ride. So he was going to go get you and come back and, and it was all going to be good. Yet he left me and I ain't seen him since, right? You, you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Here's what he said. Therefore, what right do I have to still cry out? Look, look, look at this guy's heart, man. He, he's understanding like what you've already done for me. I don't even have the right to complain about stuff anymore. Mephibosheth didn't defend himself on demand or, or, or want a hearing. He didn't get sidetracked with side issues. He said, you've already blessed me more than I deserve to be blessed. So if you take away stuff right now, what does it matter? I've lost or gained nothing because you've already given me more than I deserve to have had. Is this not an attitude we should have before God? Huh? He, and here's the truth. He knew that David had already given him more than he deserved. And in the sad part, we need to ask ourselves, do we? Do we understand that God has already blessed us more than we really deserve to be blessed? Are you like me where you don't think verse 29 was right? I get to verse 29. I'm like, man, David, what are you doing, man? I just now got props on you for being right. He's acting like a man after God's own heart. Because when somebody don't understand somebody, a lot of times it's because they're doing something so profound by God that we don't get to understand. them. You know what I'm saying? Look, Look at verse 29. You and Zeba divide the land. I'm like, man, I thought Zeba was going to get his head cut off. Like, I thought he was gone for lying. I, I thought like, but David says, you know what? I made a promise to Zeba back then. I was foolish enough to not check it out. So he's actually admitting his own faults. I was foolish enough to not check it out. I didn't investigate it myself. I went harsh and I let that harsh judgment right into it. So sometimes your harsh judgment will get you in a situation in the future where you don't want to be. And that's what he does. He said, I made my harsh judgment back in 16 verse four and I gave Zeba all the land. But instead of giving him all the land, I'm going to cut it in half. You get half, you get half. And you're thinking, man, Mephibosheth is not going to like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, that's my daddy's land. That's my granddaddy's land. And you don't gave it to me. But look at what this guy says, man. Look at what this guy says. This is awesome. And you could write this down for your little subtitle, right? He only cares about being with the king. Look at what he says. Verse 30. Rather let him take it all and as much as the Lord the king has come back in peace of his own. Can we say that rather than worrying about personal enrichment, that we're worried about what's most important to God? Do we really understand what Mephibosheth is doing right here? I mean, he he is so he's so sentimental about worrying about David that he doesn't worry about himself at all. I mean, look at look at even his wording right here, guys. He's not worried about his. He says, not for my own personal enrichment. I care nothing at all. It's that I want to make sure you can come back into your kingdom and do so in peace. Do so in peace. Do we make God's presence 
the ability to come forth in peace? Or are we the ones stirring the pot and causing disputes? Are we the one causing arguments? Are we the one causing, causing grief and heartache? Look, look, look at what, look at what this guy is so worried about. He's only worried that not only David can be back in his spot, but that David gets to come back in his spot with no more arguments. Sure, I could argue and take my stuff back from Ziba. Sure, I could argue that I've even got a right to the throne. But I, I don't want no, I don't want none of that, David. David, what I want is for you to get to take your throne in a moment of peace for the kingdom. Are we doing everything we can to make God's reign over his kingdom in peace? Or are we causing up other stuff? A quote this week said this. It is to be feared that too often we are more concerned about our rights than about his. It is a great and glorious thing when our loyalty and our love make us far more concerned about the victories of our Lord than about our own unquestioned rights. Yet that should be the normal attitude of all those who sit at the king's table. We sit at the king's table, just like Mephibosheth says he's, he's been there. And we should be so worried about his rights instead of our own. I'm grateful that not every Christian will be worried and a lot of them will be waiting, waiting anxiously for that return. This this last guy, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it short. We won't do a five. We're just going to do this last guy for this chapter. 31 through 40. The question then is, will you be working? Will you be working? This guy, Bar- Barzilia, or however the right way of saying his name is, he's a guy that we've seen before. He's a guy that helped David back when he first made his thing. Only thing we know about him, Scripture says two things. He was rich and he was good. Now, that in itself ought to stand out to us because it ain't often Scripture says somebody's rich and somebody's good. A lot of times it goes the other way. But this guy is rich and this guy's good. And here's why. Because he chose to wisely use his resources to help David out. He chose and he was reminded of maybe what would be said later on. Or maybe Jesus remembered Luke 12, 21. When Jesus spoke and he said, the foolish man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This gentleman particularly has laid up his resources, but he laid them up. To help the kingdom expand, not for itself to expand. Verse 36, why should the king repay me for such reward? This guy's got an attitude just like Mephibosheth. I, I'm not, I'm not doing this stuff so that I get a reward. I'm doing this stuff so that the king gets elevated to where the king's supposed to be. Maybe you need to ask yourself, what's your motive and what you do? Are you doing things to, to motivate yourself to, to help yourself get elevated to the right? Cause that's not what this guy's doing. This guy's so serious. He says, you know what, man? I'm 80 years old. I, I, I probably ain't got a whole lot of time left, so there's no need to keep me here and there's, or there's no need to, to worry about me staying in your kingdom. I've made this trip. I've made this journey. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this this thing that you're trying to give me. I'm going to pass it on on behalf of my son. And at 80 years old, he's still doing everything he can to get into the presence of the king. It makes me want to ask the question, will we be working when Jesus returns or will we have excuses on why we're not working? Will we have reasons on why we're not? Huh? Right. He's faithful to David and he's faithful to what he's doing at the end. And he's working. Some of us got Sunday-itis. I don't know if y'all know what Sunday-itis is. Sunday-itis is a disease that only seems to happen on Sundays. Like, like it only happens when they're at about 9 o'clock to 12.30. After that, you clear up real fast from it. I don't know if it's a special Tylenol pill you take or whatever. But it's always gone on Monday. And it never affects you on Fridays or Saturdays. It just gets you on Sunday-itis for some reason. Right. I don't know what that deal is, but but that's a problem. Jesus had the same problem with his closest followers. What did he tell him? The body is weak, but the, I mean, the the, um, the spirit is weak, but the body is, is I mean, the spirit is willing. Man, 
The spirit is willing. Talk about sidetracks getting you, right? The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. We can have a great desire, but we got to get our body in check to do things. Right? Right? Or maybe we'll end up like 40 through 43. Just, just, look, just look at the very end. We're not going to go over because we, we'll, we'll tie into it for next week's right here. But th- these tribes feel excluded because they're not part of the welcoming party. They're arguing, not because the king's coming back, because they don't get a position where the king's coming back to. They're ultimately more worried about who's more loyal to David visually for the rest of the people to see. You remember Jesus had two two of his own disciples. What'd they say? Tell us who's going to be, who's going to be the best? Who's going to be amongst you? Like, should I sit on the right or should I sit on the left of you? Which side should I argue for? And Jesus himself says it. It's not about that. Like you're missing it. You're missing some of the significant parts that could be going on right here. You're, you're, you're caught up on side issues yet again. You've got a competitive attitude and it's making you unappreciated. Whereas, whereas it should just be this huge party of victory that's coming on right now, right? Guys, no matter what goes on, you don't have to be surprised that Jesus Christ is returning. You don't have to be surprised that the King is coming. He's told you he's coming back. He's told you, you know, jobs we're supposed to be doing good now. You can be ready for his coming. You can know that he loves you, that he died for you, and that he wants you. Or you can choose to be like the people in these tribes that only seem to want Jesus back after their other kings have failed them. Or you can or you can be like the people who are worried because they haven't dealt with what's going on. Or maybe we're even like Shimmy. Maybe we're worried, but on top of our worry, we're trying to bring all we can to appeal to God. God's not looking for you to bring stuff to him. He's looking for you to be like Mephibosheth where you bring nothing before him. We're nothing but yourself. I have nothing to bring other than my joy of wanting you to be who you are and where you're supposed to be. And that, my friends, is what God wants. He wants us to be like that. And he wants us to be like like Barzillia at the very end, working for his kingdom, working for the things that he's supposed to be doing. Not whining, not whining like these tribes at the very end, arguing over stuff, but desiring to make sure that God's reign, that God's position is back where it's supposed to be. I think David gets to this part right here. And I did not set this up. I promise you I didn't. But David gets to this part right here. And he is so concerned and so reminded of who God is and what God's done through him. That I think he's gone back to chapter seven. And Carla and Stacey, they, they had lined this song up already for the invitation. But, but if you remember, this is a song Carla wrote about David where he's reminded of his covenant with God. Where he's reminded of the promises of God. Where, where he's reminded of what God's done for him and what God wants to do through him. And he's so thankful about it that he breaks out into some praise, some prayer, and some worship. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this morning, Lord God. God, we pray that you're working in situations that are all around us right now, Lord God. God, we pray that you're moving in a special way, not only spiritually, Lord God, but medically and physically, Lord God, amongst us in this room. Lord God, I pray that your hand be on top, Mr. Harold, and every single one of us in this room right now, Lord God. God, grab us where we need it most. Lord, move us, motivate us. God, let us connect with somebody in this story today, Lord God, that will better equip us for your return. God, wake us up on areas we need to be woke up in, Lord God, so that we can do and become who you've called us to do and become. To be what we're called to be. Doing what you've called us to do. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.